And so uh, they came up with some props that I thought would be, you know, I think are absolutely phenomenal. We have, uh, you know, these are actually real grapes and real bread. So if you get, no, I'm joking. But uh, it's, it's awesome. They did a fantastic job. Give them a hand. So as I'm going through this, as I'm getting a revelation of what it means for us to walk in the new covenant, there are all kinds of things that I, stories that I used to read, have read for many years that I never saw in the light that I'm seeing them in today. And so as I begin to study this and realize there are so many things that come out and jump out at me and I want to begin to share so you could see the picture of how Jesus even ministered in a different way. Jesus was still under the law whenever he ministered. So when we read the Gospels, we need to realize that under the New Covenant, Jesus ministered based upon the law. The New Covenant did not begin until he went to the cross. And so he still ministered from those ministries of the law. When they came to him and asked him questions, he answered based upon what the law said. He had to because he was still under the law himself. And so there was, there was a ministry there, and we got to realize that if we try to apply even what some of the things that are written in the Gospels that Jesus taught, he was teaching to a people, the Pharisees, who were under the law. And we need to realize that how he was teaching them, we are now under a new covenant. Hello? And so if we try to live under some of those, we need to realize that he was speaking to a people who were under the law, who were under the law. How many of you ever heard people say, or a person make a statement, well, I just don't believe in the Bible, don't agree with the Bible because there's too many contradictions? Come on. You ever heard that? You ever wondered that? Why are there so many contradictions? I'm realizing that 90% of the contradictions that we find in the Bible are because we do not have a revelation of the Old and New Covenant. Under the Old Covenant, there was law. Under the New Covenant, it was grace. And those two don't connect. For example, it says under the law, it says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Can any of us do that? Come on, let's be real. None of us can do that. In fact, there's only one that could do that, and that was Jesus. And so, but, but he knew that. That was spoken by Jesus to the people under the law to show them, just like he said, if you've committed adultery in your heart. He said that you know, this says, do not commit adultery. But if you've looked at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. So he drew a picture to show that even under the law, he brought it the law to its purest form. Do you understand? He brought the law to its purest form to show what the law's purpose was. And what was the law's purpose? To bring man to the end of himself to see his need of a Savior. That was the only purpose of the law. To bring us to the end of ourselves. End of ourselves of what? Knowing that we could not do it through and of ourselves. Through our works. And so Jesus used these examples of love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might, with all your strength. But the only problem is we all know that none of us can do that. It's my desire to do that. And probably every last one of you would say, that's my desire. But it's impossible. There's always a little bit more strength because I'm still standing. There's always a little bit more. You can see how it's, it's unobtainable. Do you understand? And so the law is unobtainable. It is unreachable. It's, we all fall short based upon the law. But he said, let me show you this love. And he said, 
It's not about, about your love to me, but it's my love to you. And so we, what he drew is a picture here that we can only love him when we first have received his love. It's only when we've received his love that we can, he showed us how to love. But it's only by that picture. So I just jumped and totally messed up my whole message. But anyway, so I don't know if I'll be able to get through this today. So you're going to take pieces that, I, that you get and hopefully it'll make sense to you when it's all said and done. I'm going to recap just for a moment. We've been talking about um, the distinction between the law versus the new covenant. And under the new, old covenant, the agreement, the law, the tablets, that we have back here, the Ten Commandments, and there were many other laws, but the, everybody distinctively knows, of course, the Ten Commandments. There was a blessing and a curse that was connected to the law. It was a blessing if you obeyed the law and a curse if you disobeyed the law. Do good, get good. Do bad, get bad. That was basically the essence, in essence, of the way it worked under the law. And the law was given to bring man to the end of themselves and to see that they are sinners in need of a Savior. That is the purpose of the law, to bring us to the end of ourselves to see our need of a Savior. And over and over we could see that, like I talked about there, Jesus drew pictures, and what he spoke was many times the law to show man that they were in need of a Savior. The Pharisees many times took the law and sort of twisted it and warped it and made it something that they could almost achieve or come real close to achieving bring it to a place that they were they could they could see themselves as being righteous but the problem is Jesus then took it and took it to a step further brought it to its purest form and it blew them away it blew them away so under the new agreement we talked about how the old covenant and the new covenant are like agreements like a rental agreement and how the terms that are written in it many times it's fine print but it's not fine print in the Bible. It clarifies it for us. What are the terms? The terms under the old agreement was if you do good, you'll get good. If you obey, you get a blessing. And if you disobey the law, you would get a curse. There would be a curse connected to it. We looked at that last week. The terms to the new agreement or the new covenant of grace is there's only blessings. And I love that picture. Many times we think that God is still looking to bring curse to us. And we've tried to mix the two. Well, if, if I can do enough or if I can do this, as soon as you look to yourself as being able to do something to qualify or you have disqualified, you are still looking at things through the eyes of the law. Are you understanding? As soon as you point to yourself, and it's hard for me because many times I will turn on a... a, 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 a um, I listen to a lot of preachers, a lot of teachings, and a lot of, you know, different people. And I love taking in teachings because I love taking in, you know, different things, different perspectives, and that type of thing. But every, so many times I turn it on, and I'll hear somebody talk about, I'm doing a series on the New Covenant. This week I turned on two different teachings, and I heard on TBN or something, I was listening, and I heard somebody start talking about, we're going to talk about the New Covenant. I was like, oh yeah, we're talking about that right now. I want to hear what they say about it. And so I start listening to it, and they'd go, the New Covenant, what it makes possible for us as believers. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they go, here's what you you need to do. You need to do this, and you need to do that, and you need to do this. And this is what the new covenant lets you make requirements on the new covenant. Makes it possible for you to make requirements. The one this morning that I heard was the guy was talking about how it allows you to, you can put a demand upon the new covenant. And I 
begin to require all the things that it points to you. And I realize that they don't understand what the new covenant is about. Because it's still pointing to you. Still pointing to us and all the things that we must do. You need to. You need to. You need to. The new covenant takes us out of the center of the equation. We talked about this last week in Hebrews 8, verse 6 and 7. It talks about how he says a better covenant. He said if there was not found fault in the old covenant, a new one would have never been required. Wow. I'm not to that, but that's okay. But now he has attained a more excellent ministry in as much as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which is established on better promises. In other words, there are better things in the new covenant. And it, I don't even know if the scripture is in there, but it talks about how, there, how that uh, if there was never found fault in that old covenant, a new one would have never been needed. But there was. There was found fault. And he goes on to say how, uh, we talked about this last week, and so I'm just going to go through it um, on my own here, but... Um, and so bear with me if I jumble it up a little bit. But it talks about how he said that under the old covenant, how he wanted to bless, but he had to turn away from his chosen people, the children of Israel, because they could not obey the law, because they could not obey the commandments. And so what, what was the fault found in that law? The fact that he could not continue blessing us based upon the law. Why? Because we could not keep it. In other words, what he hates most is not being able to bless you. That is what he hates more than anything else. And as long as we're under the law, guess what? He says, if you continue to think it has something to do with you, your works, your abilities, then it ties my hands of being able to bless you. But if you see it as being me and my ability to bless and my works and what I've finished and what I've accomplished for you, then... I can continue to bless you. I can bless you with more. Because you're not no longer hoarding all the glory about it, but you're giving me the glory. In essence, that's the new covenant. And that's the glory. That's the wonderful thing about being under the new covenant. Under the new covenant, God took you out of the center of the equation and put his perfect son, Jesus, in our place. The only part that we as believers have, according to Hebrews 8.12, and we talked about this at the end of the message last week, is to believe on Jesus. Hebrews 8.12 it says, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and to their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. So what's our part? To believe that he will be merciful to our unrighteousness. Our part is not to be righteous. We can't be. If we try to be righteous, then we have just taken on the law. Understand? But to understand that we will always fall short based upon the law. But our part is to simply believe on Jesus. That he will be merciful to our unrighteousness and our sins and our lawless deeds. He will remember no more. How is that possible? That's how great that juice right there is what it represents. When we symbolically partake of the new covenant, that's what it represents. That's how great his blood was. It was sufficient to cover us completely. That's, how, that's where we stand. That he will be merciful to our unrighteousness and our sins and our lawless deeds, he will remember no more. That's how great Jesus' blood was. It was sufficient to cover us. Hebrews 8, 6, it says, But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also a mediator of a better covenant which was established on better promises. He, 
that there's a more excellent ministry. What we are beneficiaries of today as believers is not Jesus' birth. We celebrate Jesus' birth every Christmas, and it's amazing, and it's a great time, and so I'm glad we celebrate it. But you know what? Jesus' birth did not do anything for us. Come on. It was his death that did everything. Death, burial, and resurrection that did everything for us as believers. His birth is, is a great thing to celebrate, but the true celebration for us, the benefit that we walk in today, is in his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus was born as a prophet operating under the old covenant of law. So we, so we have to carefully examine what he was doing in the Gospels as he carried out two ministries. And the two ministries that he carried out was one, fulfilling the law. Matthew 5, 17, it says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to what? Fulfill. And so we see a picture here. Is that is one of his ministries that he did. He came to fulfill the law. Fulfill the law. And the second ministry was he was trying to introduce to man something that was going to come when he would die. I want you to think about the ministry of what he, what he did even at different times. He showed a picture of what it was going to be like. Um, when he ministered to the woman at the well, he ministered to her and he told her some things that were don't really make sense in that story. He began to tell her after he, after he talked to her about you know, her husbands and all that, he told her that a day is coming when we will be able to worship in a place. And it's not going to be a place where normally it's seen as a worship place. See, in that time, there was only um, synagogues and places to worship. You had to go to a certain place to be able to worship under the law. You weren't allowed to just worship anywhere. But he was drawing a picture of how the Holy Spirit was going to be dwelling in us, and we would be able to worship in spirit and in truth. That was drawing a picture of what was to come. And it wasn't at that place yet. He was drawing a picture. So he tried to reveal what was coming. Many times when he spoke to his disciples, he talked about what was to come. So he was introducing to them something that was coming when he would die. Jesus, after he clarified this, and it's interesting because he said, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. In that following verses in chapter 5, he had to clarify that for what was about to come. And uh, he clarified that, but he, he was speaking to Pharisees and people who were under the law. Many times we take these stories and we try to apply them to ourselves, but if we don't understand that he was talking to people who are under the law still and try to apply them to ourselves, we will find ourselves miserable and in bondage. But he was applying them to people who, these Pharisees, who were attempting to water down the law and make it possible to keep the law. Now remember, what was the importance of the law? The purpose of the law was what? Come on. To show us we couldn't keep it. Bring us to the end of ourselves and to realize we need of a we are in need of a savior. To bring us to the end of ourselves and see that we are in need of a savior. So let's start in Matthew 5, verse 17. It says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will not will by no means pass from the law. Till all is fulfilled. So he drew a picture here that none of the law is going to disappear. It every detail. 
every detail of the law is still going to be there until it's fulfilled. Verse 19, whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, according to the scripture, does that line up with the new covenant? Come on. It doesn't, does it? It's talking about us, our righteousness exceeding the, a certain amount of what? People that were around, scribes and Pharisees. And it was talking about that if you will keep every law, hold it. We already know we cannot, right? So this scripture we see right here is one of those that people would look at. And unless we understand the new and the old covenant, we would look at and go, it contradicts. Understand? So we need to understand what the new and the old. This is why when we read these things, we can now, when we understand the new and the old covenant, that we can read these things and go, oh, that makes sense. He was talking to people who were still under the law. See the picture? It's important for us to see this. So Jesus expounds on how not one small detail of the law will pass until all is fulfilled. So then the very next, we're going to jump down to verse, I guess it's, yeah, the very next verse. Verse 21, it says, um, you have heard that it was said to those of old. So he's going to now expound upon the law. You've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. So this was a law, part of the Ten Commandments, right? Thou shalt not murder. Okay? Catch what he says here after that. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. So he drew a picture that even if you're angry with your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. He took the law and brought it to its purest form. Took it to a degree. So if, you know, these men were men that were righteous in their own eyes, okay? They saw righteousness as being able to be achieved through the law. They had watered it down to a point that they, they felt like they were achieving it. And so these men came to Jesus, and here's what Jesus said. He says, You have heard that it is said that in those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. And they're sitting here to themselves probably going, yes, yes, that's right. And I've never murdered. But those murderers are bad, right? I've never murdered. But then what does Jesus do? He goes a step further, further and he says, But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. Now they're looking at it going, oh, hold it. That's impossible. We've all been angry with our brother sometime. So the picture here is he blew their philosophy of their self-righteousness completely away. Why did he do this? Come on. Why did he do this? What's the purpose of the law? To bring man to the end of himself and see his need of a Savior. What was Jesus' purpose in doing this? What was Jesus saying to them? You need a Savior. You need a Savior. The very next uh, verse, we're going to jump down to verse 27, the next story, and we're going to just keep hopping along here. Uh, Matthew 5, 27, it says, You have heard it said that it was said to those of old, You shall not commit adultery. And he goes to the very same thing again. He says, But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
So we see there again, they're probably sitting there thinking, oh, yes, I've never committed adultery, so I'm righteous, you know? But they're, so what does Jesus do? Blows it away. Why does he do this? Just show them their need of a savior. That's the purpose. The only reason he would use the law is to bring man to the end of his, every last one person would say, well, hold it. I've done that. I'm no, I'm no longer righteous in my own eyes. The purpose of the law is there again, even to its purest form that Jesus drew it, was to bring man to the end of himself to see his need of his Savior. And that is the purpose of the law. Even here we see the law as a schoolmaster, bringing man to the end of himself in need of a Savior. That's what the law was intended for. It says it is a schoolmaster or a tutor. The purpose of it is to bring man to the end of himself. Bring us to the end of ourselves. Every last one of us, if we try to live in that place, can I tell you, that place of being under the law is the only time that it says that we're under a curse as believers when we go back to the law. That is one of the most miserable places. Um, I think believers, whenever I heard the statistics that many believers um, today struggle with depression, and a lot of psychological, a lot of things that they struggle with, and even actually probably even higher statistics than what's even in the world. And I began to think about that, and I began to think, how is that? There's all kinds of striving. When we try to live as believers under the law, saved by grace, but stay saved through the law. Come on. And that's what we so many times try to, has been taught in the church. We get saved, we're saved. God's, God's grace covers us, his blood covers us, past, present, and now to say saved, now go back to the law. That's works. Going back to the law to stay saved. And I believe that a lot of the things that we um, associate, or a lot of things that we associate with other things, whether it be depression, whether it be uh, you know a panic, lack of sleep. I don't even know what the technical terms are for some of these. Because I didn't, I didn't put these or study these very much. But as I'm thinking about it, I think many of those are connected to trying to live under the law as believers. Believing that we have the benefits of what Jesus has done, but bypassing Jesus for the, all the benefits that he has for us, trying to deserve them through our works. Trying to earn them through our, all the things that we try to do. All the things that we try to do. I want to look at Mark, a story of, uh, story of the rich young ruler in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. It says, Now, as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt down before him, knelt before him, and asked him, Teach, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. If that was under the new covenant, what would he have said? Simply believe. We've overcomplicated. I remember the, the message my dad gave just a couple weeks ago. God's not mad at you. Christianity, we've overcomplicated. It's just simply believing. Believe on Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. In other words, believing on Jesus. So the answer here, if it was under the new covenant, would have been simply believe. But he was not dealing with that at that point. He was still dealing with the law. And the rich young ruler came to him from that standpoint. He asked, what must I do? What must I do to, inter, to, to um, inherit eternal life? So he's dealing here with him from a perspective of the law. Verse 18, so Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? 
No one is good but one, and that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. So he gave six commandments here. I'm holding up five. I know. Six commandments here that he gave just simply just off, off the cuff to show him. And what does he say? What's his response? He says, and he answered and said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. So in his eyes, he was already, I, I'm, I'm, I've achieved it. I'm righteous based upon the law in his own eyes based upon this. Then Jesus looked at him, and he, so he boasted a little bit in how he came across. I've kept these from my youth. And what is Jesus' response? Look at this very closely, verse 21. Then Jesus looked at him, loved him. I love this picture because Jesus never at any point became angry that people thought they were self-righteous. But he loved them. Anytime you boast about keeping the law, Jesus is going to come back and say, you lack one thing. Because it was not given for you to be able to keep. Verse 21, it says, uh, Then Jesus looked at him, he loved him, and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up your cross, and follow me. But, when, but he was sad at this word, and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus hit on the one thing that this young man, this rich young ruler, had not kept, and it was the first commandment. The first commandment was, you shall, not have, you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, he hit on the one commandment that that young man had not had, had not been able to follow. He still had possessions as a god, his wealth, his riches. And so we hit on that one thing. What was Jesus saying to this rich young ruler? You need a savior. It's not to say that riches are not good. Riches that if we should be wealthy, that it's against God's will for us to be wealthy. That if you have something, you should give it. No, that's not what God's saying. He was drawing a picture here. But how many of you have heard? I've heard many times messages that have been given that if you have it in your pocket, you should be giving it. It's a wrong concept. It's based upon a scripture right here that was given to a man to bring a man to the end of himself and show him that he needs a savior. It was never meant to be given as a law that we should be living by, that if you have it, you should give it. And if you have wealth, then you should be ashamed of yourself. Come on. That philosophy has been picked up in church and has been taught and preached and has been given almost like it's a law and it was never intended to be a law. You should never be ashamed for what you have, but be willing to allow God to use you in whatever you have. We are blessed to be a blessing. That doesn't mean you shouldn't have it. It doesn't mean that God hasn't blessed you. Let me tell you something. In this world, wealth is power, and God needs some very wealthy Christians in this world because we need to have some influence and some power to be able to speak into some situations in this nation. And there's nothing wrong with having it. I believe that there's going to be some men. I, I just see a picture of there being some men that are going to have an enormous amount of money. Don't know how it's going to happen. And they're going to be able to speak into situations. It's amazing. It doesn't matter what a person's character is like. If they have a ton of wealth, it's like they know everything. People sit around and I'm like, oh, really? How did they get it? 
How do they come about it? Have no character at all. Been married 12 times. Really? And you're going to stand there and glean from them like they know everything and they don't know. They just simply have wealth, which brings incredible influence. Come on. They need a savior. (laughs) But the truth of the matter is, why shouldn't God's people have that influence? Why shouldn't they be blessed? We need to begin to believe for that favor. We need to begin to believe that God's going to give us that kind of influence in this community. He's going to bless us to a place that we can begin to provide for needs in this community. I remember the story that was given um, of a of a church. Uh, I don't even know where it was, somewhere between the North Pole and South Pole. Um, but they were wanted to provide practical needs in their community. They wanted to have true influence. And they were a small church, probably about like ours, in a small community. And the fire department that was in that town did not have the funds to be able to buy proper equipment. And the church said, well, how much is this going to cost? They needed a special respirator mask and a special some equipment. And so they began to say, hey, you know what? We're going to believe that God's going to provide us the money to be able to purchase this. And they saved up money and they purchased some items for that fire department. And when they began to purchase another item, then another item, then another item, and they continued to fund things in the community that were needs, needs in the community. And the community made notice, took notice to what was happening. And the church began to have the mayor, the fire chief, half the fire department, half the police department, all began to come to this church. Do you realize the influence that began to happen? Come on. What happened was God began to position them for influence in that community because they started providing practical needs in that community. That's exactly what God wants for us. I don't know why I got onto that, but anyway, God's good. He has a purpose and a reason for it. Draw a picture. We need to see a picture. See a new picture. We've been drawn a wrong wrong picture. What the church is, what we're to be, and the new covenant. It's a realization of the new and old covenant. And even what some of the scriptures that we've read and tried to apply and live by is one of the main things that I want to bring out here today. Some of the things that we've tried to live by were never meant for us to try to live by because it takes us back to the law. He was showing us how the law brings man to the end of himself. Every time that they would attempt to water down the law and prove that they could keep it, Every time when we, I could say this, that we try attempt to water down the law and try to attempt to keep it, bring it to a place that we can keep it, Jesus will always show up and he'll always show us that all have fallen short of the law and need a savior. Every time. It'll always come to a place where there's always one more place that we fall short. That we to bring us to the end of ourselves to show us that we need a savior. Jesus even went as far, and in, and I didn't have this passage here, but it was in this one of these stories here. But Jesus even went as far as to say that if your hand causes you to sin, to cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If you truly want to live by the law, and I and I want to I want to ask, I have. You know, family, I have so many people that I know try to live by the law. And I want to ask, what do you do about all those scriptures? Why aren't you walking around with nubs and blind? Really, I mean, come on. If we're going to try to live the law, why aren't we walking it out? So we're taking part of it away, only taking what we think we can attempt, and going around thinking we're self-righteous, 
to an extent, always falling short still. Miserable because we know we fall short. Never walking in the benefits of what God has for us because we know we're constantly disqualified. I mentioned it to it during praise and worship because it's something we got to constantly be aware of. As soon as you think you're disqualified, we're still trying to live under the law. If you, for a moment, whenever God's, whenever somebody says something about the benefits or the blessing or healing in your life, and your mind goes to your works or your dis, something that disqualifies you, whether it be something you saw, something you thought, something you said to your wife, you yelled, you whatever, you immediately are going back to the law. And it goes back to your works. And it disqualifies us. And that's why so many believers are walking around downcast and not walking in the benefits of truth of what God has truly done. Because we're still trying to live under the law. Still trying to live under the law. It's a miserable place to be. Amen? Hmm. Hmm. Jesus, whenever he said these things about cutting off your hands, gouging out your eyes if they offend you, what was he trying to say about that? You need a savior. That's his whole point. He wasn't saying that this was an actual thing you're supposed to do. But if you take it as its word by the law, that's what he was saying. But if you take it based upon understanding that he was trying to draw a picture that the law is impossible, it will help us to understand from the standpoint that he was coming from. When Jesus was teaching these things, he was teaching a people who were under the law We must recognize the people to whom Jesus was speaking and teaching to when we read the Word of God. Unless we understand the New Covenant, we will try to apply things that Jesus preached specifically to people who were under the law and will find ourselves living in bondage. When we try to live under these things that Jesus was specifically teaching to people who were under the law, they were never meant to be taught as things that we're supposed to be trying to live by as believers under the new covenant. Matthew 23, 37, it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Are you capable of this? We talked about this earlier and don't need to answer it again. Nobody but Jesus was able to do this. Nobody but Jesus was able to do this. He wants to love you first and then you will, and, and so that you will be able to know how to love him. That is the order. First John 4.10 confirms this. It says, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be our propitiation for our sins. In other words, it's not that we loved him, but that he loved us first. We can never know how to love God properly or correctly or to the degree that we can possibly love him unless we first receive his love. I want you to think about the story of when Jesus um, was tempted in the desert. Jesus, and Satan told Jesus, Satan, um, he told Jesus to turn the stones into bread. How many of you remember the story? I'm not going to go there for time's sake. But he tempted Jesus when he was in the desert. And he said, if you are the son of God, what part did he leave out? See, Jesus was just baptized. And whenever he was baptized... The father, the voice, the the angel, uh, the um, the dove came down and landed upon him, which represented the Holy Spirit. And the voice of God came down and says, "This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased." 
And when Satan tempted him, he says, if you are the son of God, he left out one part, the beloved. Understanding that you're the beloved is a critical thing for us to understand. Knowing that you're the beloved of God. Knowing that you're the beloved. But when Satan tempted Jesus with this, he said, turn this stone into bread. Why did he tempt him with a stone? What was the law written on? Stone. He was tempting him to go back to the law. Nourish yourself with the law. Nourish yourself with the law. But see, he is achieving something that he didn't need to nourish himself with the law. What was his answer? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Proceeds from the mouth of God. So he brought a picture here. What is our responsibility? We must understand that we are not nourished by the law. We have, cho- we have a choice of being nourished by two different things. We have two choices. Nourish yourself by living and being led by the law, or nourish yourself by living and being led by the word that comes by the Spirit of God. Jesus was drawing a picture here, and he refused being turning that stone into bread. He could have turned that stone into bread. It was no big deal. He could have nourished himself at any moment. But he knew what Satan was tempting him at. Turning that stone into bread meant so much more. Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9, says, I marvel, and this is Paul speaking here, and you've got to realize this, and this is something for us today. He says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. So the grace of Christ was called the gospel. If we're turning away from the grace of Christ, could we say that the gospel is the gospel of grace? Come on. That is what the gospel is. It's a grace gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ is the grace of God. Understanding that it's not something you can earn. It's not something you can deserve. That's what grace is. Unearned, unmerited favor of God. It is his grace that makes it possible for us to stand. It is his grace that sets you in line for the blessings. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. Paul says, I am what I am because of the grace of God. It was not something he could earn, not something he could deserve, but it was something that he looked and he said, I give the glory to God. So verse 7, he says, um, um, So he says, turning to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Well, that's a strong word. As we have said before, I say now, I, I, shoo. So now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. So there's a double curse that he spoke there, emphatically repeating it twice, that if you go to any other gospel, then the gospel that was preached, which was the what? The gospel of grace, which was preached to you. Going back to any other gospel, you are cursed. What could be any other gospel? What was familiar to them? What were they trying to do? I believe the picture that they were trying to do there is they were going back. Um, This verse implies that the grace of Christ is the gospel of Christ. He says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from the gospel of Christ to a different gospel. The grace means unfair and merited favor. 
So they were turning away from the gospel of Christ to another gospel, back to the law. They were mixing law into it, or we could say their works. They were trying to mix their works with the grace gospel that, that was given. And when we try to mix that, he says that there's a curse that's spoken when we try to mix grace with the law. Ephesians 2, 8, it says, For by the grace of God have for by the grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a, the gift of God. We are not saved in and of ourselves. It is a gift of God. By grace we have been saved, and it is a gift of God. And many times this is exactly how we did it. We're saved by grace, but we stay saved through our works. We try to do it through our prayer, our fasting, our tithing, all the things that we try to do, trying to think that it would make us keep us a little bit closer to God, make us a little bit stronger in line of favor. You know, it's interesting because I'm not against. Every one of these things are good, but if we do it to achieve something, then we miss the point. If his grace is his unmerited, undeserved favor that we walk in. I remember many times I would sit and think about, well, okay, I want to prepare for the message today, and I need to spend so much time, or I need to prepare for the message on Sunday, and I, I want to spend some time. I really, I remember going into it thinking that when I become a pastor, here's what I'm going to need to be able to do. I'm going to need to have at least, I want to, I want to have the power of God show up. I don't want to have anything less than God's very best. I want the presence to be so strong that people come in and they feel it when they walk in the door. I want, you understand what I'm saying? Great picture. I want that, and I still want that. But I remember thinking to myself, how is that going to happen? And I remember thinking, I'm going to spend at least one day fasting a week and praying for that to happen. Now, that may have happened once or twice, but I realized real soon after I become, started to realize this scripture that if it's grace, many times that I come in here and I feel frazzled and I've had a crazy week and I, and I had a message that I put together and many times I could have the best message prepared and God will change it on me either the night before or he'll change it on me that Sunday morning and I'll think, God, why are you doing this? I don't know where I'm going now. I like having it all prepared. I like having it all laid out. And those can be way better than the ones that I have all play, worked up and put together and nicely prepared. And I can spend all the time in prayer and fasting. And sometimes the anointing and the presence is stronger on a day like that than a day that I've had all this preparation and all this time of fasting and praying. Why is that? Not saying it's not good. Not saying it's not important at times when God leads you to do that. But if I'm doing it for something, then I'm going to go into it believing I deserve it. And his grace is unearned, undeserved. It is something that comes to us not because we earned it. If we think we deserved it, then we missed it. It's no longer a gift. His grace is a gift. It's the gift that he has given us to walk in daily. So therefore, when you feel like you're disqualified because of what you've done, understand, I love going back to that scripture, is when we are weak, that is when he had made strong. He is made strong in us when we are weak. When we feel disqualified, some of those times are the best times in the world. I remember when I was on the mission trip when I was 18 years old, uh, Columbia, South America, our missionaries that are down there, I was at that church. I was with them, 
And uh, I remember feeling so disqualified. I was 18 years old. I was, uh, you know, we, were, we would get done with the service, and we would, we would have an altar call, and we'd get done, and we'd say, is there anybody who'd like to get saved? And there would be like four or 500 people that would just come down and want to be, want to be prayed for and want, to be, want us to, Americans to pray for them. And I remember thinking, oh, my goodness, what are we going to do? I mean, how are we supposed to handle this? And how are we, I don't even, I can't even speak Spanish. I've got to have an interpreter standing next to me. And I don't know what to pray for this person. I don't know what they're going through. I don't, know, I don't even know what their culture is much like. I just got here. And, you know, all these things were going through my mind. I felt so inadequate for what I was stepping into in that moment. Do you understand what I'm saying? And I would begin to pray in my best best English prayer that I could come up with. Are you understanding what I'm saying? And they would be interpreting next to me. And I didn't know if they understood anything I was saying. I didn't know if I was speaking anything that they understood. I didn't know if he was even speaking to them about where they were at. But all of a sudden, they just begin to cry and weep. And the presence of God would come upon them. And this person would, would go down. And this person, we'd pray for healing. Well, she needs healing in her arm. We would begin to pray. And it's in those times that I realize that when I am the weakest, that is when I look to him. I said, I remember going into those times and I'm like, God, you're going to have to show up. You are going to have to show up. You're going to have to do it because I don't have it. I don't have what these people are looking for. Isn't that a great place to be? I look back on it now. I remember I was scared to death in that situation. But I look back on it now and I think, wow, what an incredible. I want to be that place every Sunday. I want to be that place every day when I talk to somebody. I want to be in that place all the time where I feel completely inadequate, completely unable to do it, so I rely completely upon him. That's what we need to be so that we can truly allow him to be what he needs to be in us. That's the place. But isn't it interesting how, you know, the more confident we become in something, the more confident we become in it being about us. And we're missing it. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. I'm going to stop there. First Corinthians 15:10. It says, "But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all." Isn't that interesting? How Paul put that in there? I labored more abundantly than than they all. Yet. Not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Not I. I thought I labored, but nothing in comparison to what the grace of God has labored on my behalf. Come on. What Jesus has done for us. Nothing in comparison. Nothing in comparison. Not I, but the grace of God. Amen? Let's stand. It's amazing what happens whenever we get ourselves out of the way. We begin to see that it's God, it's Jesus, it's what he's done for us. And the celebration of what we walk in in the new covenant, we walk in the benefits, we walk in so many great things. And I want us to realize, even as we begin to read the scripture, that we realize the truth of where we are at, where we stand under the new covenant. As you don't stand under the old covenant, there's a clear defined line between where we stand and where People under the old covenant stood. Now we stand in line for blessings. Amen? God is the God of blessings. There's no longer under a curse. You're not under a curse. Come on. Many times, I even caught myself this week. I had a situation. I was having a really rough day. And I caught myself making a statement. I was doing some work. And 
Another thing went wrong. I had a day, one of those days. How many of you have one of those days where it just it seems like a cycle, it just thing after thing, a ripple effect, I just situations go wrong. I had another situation, and I was trying to work on a piece, and it fell off and broke, and I was like, oh, my goodness. It says, figures, no, you know, my luck. I thought, what? What am I saying? That's not, I'm not, that's not my luck to have things go wrong. You understand what I'm saying? I caught myself after the words came out. I was like, what, 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 what was that? Realizing because it's, at, but I used to say that all the time. So now there's a pattern that's set for me to, those lines that I used to say, well, it's my luck. Well, my luck is this, or that's just the way things go for me, or you understand what I'm saying? we got to change those because we're speaking the negative that we used to believe for ourselves. And we need to speak what we know the favor of God is for us, that we walk in, the blessings that God has for us, that we're not under a curse, that I don't, need, I don't expect those bad things because I'm no longer under a curse. Come on. But we're under blessings. And God only has blessings for us. So we walk under that. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah. Well, Father God, Lord, we just thank you today, Father God, for your presence. We thank you, God, that we 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 stand before you today and under a new covenant, Father God, a blessing, no longer under a curse, Father God. Lord, we stand under God, Lord, that you have only blessings for us. Father, we just pray that, Father God, we get a new revelation of this new covenant, even today, Father God, as we go throughout this day, Father God, that you continue to remind us, even when things go wrong, that, Father God, we stand righteous before you today, not by our works, Father God, Lord, the areas where we think that we can we can do it in and of ourselves, Father God, show us, Lord, the point of the law was, Father God, that, Lord, we come to the end of ourselves and see the need of a Savior. So today, Father God, Lord, we, we choose, to, we want to see, Father God, you as our Savior. Lord, take away the law. Lord, we just pray that we would see, Father God, that, Lord, it's not by our works, it's not by anything we could do, but it's only by you. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. And I'd like to have everybody just close your eyes just for a moment. If there's anybody here today that you do not know what, what it is to have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior of your life, I just want to open it up. If you'd like to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you say, I've never done that. I don't know what that means. But I do want to know what the benefits of having the blessing and walking in this new covenant. If there's anybody here, just raise your hand. Anybody? Amen. All right. We'll be blessed today in Jesus' name. Give somebody a hug before you leave.